Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 1, For Those Who Think Young. Mad Men began producing its second season in April 2008. The new season inspired anticipation from both fans and critics. The Associated Press had named Mad Men 2007's best show of the year. At the 2008 Golden Globe Awards held on January 13th, Mad Men won several awards, including Best Drama Series and Best Actor in a Drama Series. On May 29, 2008, AMC announced Mad Men's second season. The cast remained largely intact. The most prominent addition was Mark Moses, who returned as Duck Phillips. Moses had a long career in acting. His career began in 1983 with a role in ABC's soap opera One Life to Live. That same year, he acted alongside Sean Penn, Val Kilmer, and Kevin Bacon in a Broadway performance of The Slab Boys. Moses eventually appeared in several movies, including Platoon, Deep Impact, and Big Mama's House 2. He was working on Desperate Housewives when he saw a few Mad Men episodes and asked his agent to get him involved. Moses claims his father was an inspiration for his Mad Men role. I really wanted to be on it because my father was on Madison Avenue and led that kind of life, and that's what I grew up with, so I understood the characters that embodied that world. AMC cast Moses as Duck Phillips, and he appeared in episodes 12 and 13 of season 1. He returned as a series regular for season 2. Among other additions, Mad Men brought back Deborah Lacey as the Draper's housekeeper, Carla. Gabriel Mann would play the role of Arthur Case and Patrick Cavanaugh would play copywriter Smitty Smith. A few characters would not return, including Midge Daniels, Rachel Mankin, and the Sterling Cooper switchboard operator, Marge. AMC released several promotional teasers for Season 2. Many of these included classic songs, like Beggin' by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, Sinner Man by Nita Simone, and The Truth by Royce and Murphy. One spot used the series' tagline, Where the Truth Lies. Another showed a montage of several characters and introduced a new line, Everyone has something to hide. Though the second season of Mad Men seemed like the only logical conclusion to season one's success, it presented challenges for writer and showrunner Matthew Weiner. I had used up a lot of the story I wanted to tell in season one, Weiner said. I think the themes Weiner landed on, themes we'll see in the season premiere and throughout season two, speak to these challenges. Mad Men's first season told a story about Don's identity that had been planned for years. Season 2 departs a bit from Don's past and focuses on ideas about youth and the future. It deals with Don and others feeling bored and dissatisfied. The season feels like the musings of a showrunner, saying, I finished telling my story. Now what? How do I recapture that original spark of narrative creativity? How do I feel new again? Episode 2.1, For Those Who Think Young, takes place on Valentine's Day, 1962, 15 months after the conclusion of Mad Men's first season. Weiner wanted Season 2 to appeal to people who had never seen Season 1. He introduced the time gap to allow more narrative freedom. For those who think Young doesn't strive to tie Season 1's loose ends, like Season 2, its focus is on the future, and it opts not to look backward, but forward. The episode begins with a montage of characters set to the Chubby Checker song, Let's Twist Again. Let's Twist Again was released in 1961 and harkens back to The Hobo Code, which featured Checker's original hit, The Twist. Joan zips up her red dress, 
Trudy puts on Pete's cufflinks, and Peggy gets ready while reading a copy of Ad Age. Workers outfit a lock on Don's office door, a sign of his growing status. The song ends as Betty rides horses at a stable. Actress January Jones did several months of training for English Saddle to ride horses throughout season two. Don undresses at the doctor's office. The nurse weighs him and the doctor asks about his lifestyle. You live too hard, he says. He takes Don's blood pressure and prescribes phenobarbital to calm his nerves. Phenobarbital is a Schedule IV controlled substance that was introduced by Bayer in 1912 under the name Luminol. It was prescribed for conditions like seizures, insomnia, and anxiety. Phenobarbital has also been used as a recreational drug and for euthanasia. It was phased out as an anxiety treatment in the mid-1960s after the introduction of benzodiazepines. This scene establishes an idea that will persist throughout the episode. Don and Betty's relationship has changed. We would never expect to see Don at a doctor's office in season one. For those who think Young's first scenes establish that Don is trying to act more responsibly. Meanwhile, Betty's developing into a more independent woman. In the next scene, she hops off a horse and chats with her riding partner, Sarah Beth Carson. They notice a young man, Arthur Case, at the stables and gossip about his engagement. Betty says goodbye to Sarah Beth and enjoys a moment alone, sitting in her car as she smokes a cigarette. Through horseback riding, Betty's found a momentary escape from her life as a housewife. Note the cars and how they're tied to for those who think Young's ideas about newness and youth. Betty sits in a 1962 Mercury Colony Park station wagon. Sarah Beth leaves in the same 1957 Ford Country that Betty used to drive. Season 2 of Mad Men will promulgate ideas about consumerism through details like this. Consumerism is rooted in a desire to feel new, the hope that you'll feel different, expressed in owning a new refrigerator or this year's car. Directly related is the 1960s growing obsession with mechanization and technology, and for those who think Young links these ideas with the transition to Sterling Cooper, where Joan and the secretaries watch men deliver a Xerox 914. Xerox began selling the 914 in September 1959, and its introduction in Mad Men hints at Sterling Cooper's transformation. The ladies are excited about the copier, one that will eventually replace many of their jobs. Joan isn't sure where to put it. Fun fact, the Mad Men Xerox machine had an active Twitter account throughout the series, at Xerox914. Several copywriters wait for Don in Sterling Cooper's conference room. Freddie asks for a drink and says he's late for lunch at the Pen and Pencil. The Pen and Pencil was a steakhouse and bar at 205 East 45th Street in New York City, just a half mile from Grand Central. Writers and ad men frequented the location. Paul grows tired of waiting and asks Peggy to check with Don's secretary. When she leaves, the men speculate about her absence. Harry thinks she had a baby, Don's baby. Don's been screwing me for the last three years. I've got nothing, Paul jokes. Pete enters ironically amid talk of Peggy's absence. Fat farm, he says. I thought we had verification. Peggy walks over to Don's new secretary, Lois Sadler. Lois was introduced in season one as a switchboard operator with a crush on Salvatore. Peggy approaches and asks about Don. Do you have any idea when you'll be expecting Mr. Draper? Um, I was expecting him at the beginning of work today, but then he called and said he'd be late. He said he was going to the movies. Pinocchio. Thank you. Lois is perhaps Don's most incompetent secretary, and season two will make light of the situation several times. Here, Peggy notices Lois's sarcasm and scolds her. It's a callback to how Joan taught Peggy to be a secretary, one that hints at Peggy's confidence at work and at her respect for Don. Are you insinuating something? I wasn't doing anything, I don't think. 
I believe that. I want you to imagine when you talk about Mr. Draper that he's standing right behind you. But Don's not in his office. He sits at a bar for lunch eating steak and eggs with a glass of whiskey. He notices a man at the bar reading Meditations in an Emergency, a collection of poems first published by Frank O'Hara in 1957. Don nods to the man and asks about the book. I don't think you'd like it, he says. Frank O'Hara was born in Baltimore, Maryland on March 27, 1926. His parents lied about his true date of birth to conceal that he was born out of wedlock. O'Hara studied piano at the New England Conservatory in Boston from 1941 to 1944, before joining the Navy and serving in World War II's Pacific Theater. O'Hara studied literature at Harvard after returning from the war. He later earned his M.A. in English literature from the University of Michigan in 1951. After graduating, O'Hara moved to New York City and became a prominent teacher at the New School. He worked as a reviewer for Art News, and even as a curator for the Museum of Modern Art. In 1957, O'Hara published just 75 copies of Meditations in an Emergency, a book of poetry he had scribbled down about his life in New York City. By 1962, O'Hara was 36 years old, the same age as Don Draper. O'Hara's poetry was rooted in observation. Many of his poems reflected on moments from everyday life. He would dash off poems at odd moments, at his office in the Museum of Modern Art, in the street at lunchtime, or even in a room full of people. He would then put them away in drawers and cartons and half forget them, said John Ashbery. O'Hara felt that poetry should be free-spirited. He was inspired by New York school painters like Jackson Pollock and rejected traditional ideas like rhythm and assonance. O'Hara was spurred by one of Paul Goodman's essays to write with an embarrassing directness. His poetry was controversial. It confronted traditional literature and blurred the boundary between what is public and what is private. He wanted to voice the American culture's deeply held inner disquiet. That last bit should sound familiar. It's the same confrontation of the American ethos that inspired Mad Men. Matthew Weiner became interested in O'Hara after visiting the Museum of the City of New York. Weiner initially wanted to feature Lunch Poems, another O'Hara collection published in 1964. But in remaining true to the period, he settled on Meditations in an Emergency, a set of poems about love, youth, and identity that so plainly describes Don's state of mind throughout season two. Joan enters Roger's office that afternoon. He asks about her new fiancé while Joan deflects. She's moved on from their past relationship, but Roger is unhappy. He is, however, healthy again, and trying to give up smoking. Season 2's recurring bit shows Roger ask other characters for cigarettes because he's not allowed to carry his own. The implication is that Roger's wife isn't letting him have much fun. Duck enters Roger's office and interrupts the interrogation about Joan's new boyfriend. He says Sterling Cooper needs younger creative talent. Young people are the future, Duck insists, and their ideas are different. They drink soda instead of coffee. They work collaboratively. Having younger employees, Duck says, will appeal to clients. Duck voices sentiments common to this period of the 1960s. Agencies sought younger, more artistic, avant-garde creative talent. We discussed the Volkswagen campaigns of Doyle Dane Birnbach in episode 1.3, Marriage of Figaro. DDB's creative success inspired other firms to copy their approach, with young employees who blurred the boundaries between artist and writer. Many of these young creatives were foreign, recent immigrants, and even beats looking for an industry that accepted their unconventional ideas. Many brands started to notice the buying power of young people. Ads targeted young adults and appealed to changing sensibilities. Brands embraced pop culture and product placement to reach younger audiences. Soda was commonly associated with this movement, 
with many younger people preferring Coca-Cola and Pepsi to coffee. The episode title, For Those Who Think Young, became Pepsi's slogan in 1961. It was featured in campaigns throughout the 60s, and was even used as the title for a 1964 movie that heavily featured young people drinking Pepsi. Have you noticed? You hear something new at fountains today. People who think young say, Pepsi, please. The lively crowd today agrees. Those who think young say, Pepsi, please. They pick the right one, the modern light one. Now it's Pepsi for those who think young. When you say, Pepsi, please. The creative staff continues to wait in Sterling Cooper's conference room. Paul claims he had no time for artwork. Peggy is more confident. We have art, she announces. Here we see more hints about Peggy's talent. While some of the characters like Paul struggle, Peggy's career continues to rise. Dale falls asleep, his mouth open as he rests in a chair. Don finally arrives at the office where Lois takes his coat and reminds him about the meeting. He finds them waiting and wakes up Dale. Kinsey presents his idea. Mohawk Airlines, there's a new chief in the sky. And I thought following that, most routes to Boston, circle the wagons, we've got it surrounded. And there'd be wagons around a dot that says, Boston. Don seems unimpressed. There has to be advertising for people without a sense of humor. Stop writing for other writers, he says. Peggy presents her own idea, wherever Mohawk takes us. But Don is again unexcited. The destination is unimportant, Don says. It could be anywhere. He fantasizes out loud, suggesting that flying evokes our dreams of adventure. <laughs> you want to get on a plane to feel alive. You want to get on a plane to see just the hint of a woman's thigh because her skirt is just this much too short. Roger approaches Don that afternoon and encourages him to hire some younger creative talent. He blames the idea on Duck, but Roger clearly agrees. It's evidence of one of Roger's talents, shifting blame. Roger hands Don a list of names he got from Paul Kinsey. Don angrily dismisses the idea as a fad, but Roger convinces him to do it anyway. You're talking as if there's some fresh version of us. They're not. Young people don't know anything, especially that they're young. Huh. Well, let me set this in a more appealing context for you. Prove them wrong. Later that evening, Don sits at the bar of the Savoy Hotel in New York City. Located at 767 Fifth Avenue, the Savoy opened in June 1892. It was purchased in 1926 by Harry S. Black, the owner of the nearby Plaza Hotel. Black demolished the entire city block and built a thousand-room luxury hotel. The 33-story, 420-foot Savoy Plaza Hotel cost $30 million, an amount worth about $450 million today. It opened on October 1, 1927. The Savoy was bought by Hilton Hotels in January 1957. Hilton managed the hotel on February 14, 1962, the date of this episode. It was later sold and demolished in 1964 amidst public outcry. To this day, the Savoy is one of the tallest voluntarily demolished buildings in world history. It made way for New York's prominent 50-story General Motors building. The Savoy is another example of the out-with-the-old-in-with-the-new idea portrayed throughout for those who think young. Mad Men filmed its scenes at the Los Angeles Biltmore Hotel. It's there that Betty enters, her slow-motion descent down a marble staircase accompanied by Rimsky-Korsakov's Song of the Indian Guest. Taken from scene 4 of Rimsky-Korsakov's Sadko, 
Song of the Indian Guest voices the opera's themes of romance and exotic faraway places. Sadko tells the story of its title character, who leaves his family and homeland, travels the world, meets beautiful women, and amasses a fortune. This scene really highlights for those who think Young's study of romance, relationships, and youth. Mad Men intentionally separates Don and Betty for the first half of the episode, increasing tension left over from season 1's finale. When Betty walks down the stairs toward the camera, it's as if she's beckoning to the sexual fantasy Don voices at work. It seems optimistic. In this moment, Don sees Betty as young and beautiful and exciting. He stares at her, surrounded by elegance, desiring her for an instant, before the music fades and she becomes his wife again. As they wander around the Savoy, Betty notices an old friend, Juanita Carson. Juanita is with an older gentleman who tries to be polite but seems noticeably annoyed with the conversation. Betty says that Juanita was her roommate, that they modeled together before she met Don. When they sit down, Don tells her that Juanita is an escort. She's a party girl, Bets. Don suggests room service and takes Betty to their hotel room. He sits on the bed as Betty shows him the diaphragm in her purse and hands him a Valentine's Day card from Sally. Betty heads to the bathroom. She walks out and shows off her black lingerie. Don seems intrigued and moves toward her, but he slides past her to use the bathroom for himself. That night Don and Betty try to make love in the darkness of the hotel room, but Don is nervous, unaroused, and can't perform. Beyond Don and Betty's lack of intimacy, I think this scene hints at more of the physical symptoms of Don's lifestyle. The shot was horizontally flipped in post-production, and you can see Betty's wedding ring on her right hand. Weiner wanted to swap the couple's typical positions in bed, perhaps to indicate a different dynamic in their relationship. Their dispositions are also flipped, as Betty seems assertive while Don is indecisive. I wish you would tell me what you want, Betty says. He rolls over and grabs the phone to order room service, struggling to make a decision. Betty takes charge and orders for them, as Don turns on the TV and watches A Tour of the White House. A Tour of the White House with Mrs. John F. Kennedy was a television special featuring the United States' new First Lady. Jacqueline Bouvier was the daughter of Wall Street broker John Bouvier III and Manhattan socialite Janet Norton Lee. She attended several schools and was noted in her senior class yearbook for her wit and her unwillingness to become a housewife. Bouvier attended Vassar College and spent a year abroad at the University of Grenoble and at the Sorbonne in Paris. She later transferred to George Washington University, where she won a junior editorship at Vogue magazine and graduated with a degree in French literature. Bouvier was introduced to John F. Kennedy in May 1952. They were both Catholic, had both lived abroad, and both enjoyed writing. Shortly after becoming a Massachusetts senator, Kennedy proposed, and the two were married on September 12, 1952 at St. Mary's Church in Newport, Rhode Island. Jackie Kennedy was already a prominent social figure by the time her husband announced his 1960 presidential campaign. She had appeared on the cover of the April 21, 1958 issue of Life magazine and was admired for her style and family values. Kennedy had visited the White House twice before becoming the First Lady. She was dismayed to find it furnished with little regard for historical significance. She began restoring the interior on her first day in residence. Kennedy established a committee to guide the restoration process. She redesigned and replanted the Rose Garden and the East Garden, which would later be renamed in her honor. Kennedy's work led to many future White House preservation efforts, including establishing a permanent White House curator. By 1962, Kennedy had been approached by several television networks interested in touring the restored White House. CBS, ABC, and NBC agreed to jointly fund and broadcast the hour-long documentary. A tour of the White House aired on CBS and NBC on February 14, 1962. It was rebroadcast by ABC four days later. 
the tour was syndicated globally to 50 countries and watched by more than 80 million viewers. It inspired future documentaries targeted towards women, including Grace Kelly's A Look at Monaco. Some film critics have suggested that a tour of the White House appealed to women's fantasies about living a more public life while maintaining their conventional feminine qualities. Mad Men uses the tour to weave together another character montage. Joan watches on the sofa, captivated as her fiancé kisses her neck. Gerald Downey played Greg Harris in For Those Who Think Young. The role would be recast in future episodes. Salvatore Romano sits at home with his new wife. They both seem equally fascinated. Pete arrives that evening with a box of chocolates. My Last Love by Benny Green and Tony Crombie plays as he consoles Trudy, who's upset about the couple's inability to conceive a child. Trudy mentions that Harry Crane's wife is now pregnant. It's a big club they're all in together, she says. Pete cheers Trudy up and later watches the White House tour alone, eating her chocolates. Francine visits Betty the following morning. They sit in the draper's kitchen and Betty gushes about Don and the Savoy. Betty lies about her date several times, implying that she and Don made love. Francine wishes her husband Carlton was as romantic as Don. She's clearly forgiven Carlton's infidelity that was revealed in episode 1.13, The Wheel. Betty then mentions Juanita Carson. She's an escort. Don agreed with me, Betty says. She speculates about Juanita's life and seems intrigued. Francine brings up the movie Butterfield 8, a 1960 film starring Elizabeth Taylor as an Upper East Side call girl. Butterfield 8 has an unconventional spelling, due to a popular convention referring to telephone exchanges by name rather than number. Dialing BU8 or 288 reached the central office servicing Manhattan's Upper East Side neighborhoods. Mad Men is conveying several ideas in this scene that will continue throughout season two. The first is Betty's desire to keep up appearances. She often lies to portray an outwardly faultless life, and this interaction with Francine presents more evidence of Betty's dishonesty. Actress January Jones has stated that Betty wants to feel superior to the other housewives. The appearance of perfection is essential to maintaining her superiority. A newer idea, though, is Betty's consideration of the question, what is my material value? And for those who think young, Betty begins to use her beauty as an asset. Juanita's introduction and the reference of Butterfield 8 support the episode's larger ideas about physical beauty and empowerment. It's an extension of Betty's growing independence. Betty's no longer presented as a defenseless little girl. She's learning how to get what she wants without Don's help. That morning at Sterling Cooper, two young creatives walk into Don's office. Harry speculates that Don was forced to hire them. Pete counters. No one makes Draper do anything. Paul laments giving the list of names to Roger, saying he signed his own death warrant. Kenny remains unconvinced. Draper has a rope around Duck's neck, he says. Peggy walks by and complains that she wasn't invited to the meeting. Joan reprimands Lois in the hallway. She says Lois should respect Peggy, and scolds Lois for crying. They look at the Xerox machine, still undecided. I think it looks good now, but it will get messy, says Lois. Joan agrees and continues searching for a spot to install the machine. Don holds a brief interview with Smitty and Kurt Smith. They're young, beatnik creatives with little experience. The Smiths currently work at PKL, a trendy firm founded by copywriter Julian Koenig, the writer behind DDB's Think Small and Lemon campaigns. The show turns this into a bit where the Smiths encourage Don to keep quiet about the interview. Mad Men paints a striking contrast between Smitty's laid-back attitude and Don's directness. Don struggles to understand the few words Kurt says throughout the interview. Duck finds them on their way out. I like the direction you're taking, he tells Don, but Don responds with a challenge. Now that I've given you your babies and your Xerox machine, 
Should I throw in a couple of elephants? I don't want there to be an excuse when you can't bring in Martinson's coffee. Madman introduced Duck with optimism. He was Don's choice to replace Roger as head of accounts, with experience at the more prominent London-based agency YNR. For those who think Young hints at Duck's lack of success over the last 15 months, this is a story that will play out throughout season two. Matthew Weiner claims he drew inspiration from a legendary power struggle between Bruce Crawford and Jim Jordan at the ad agency BBDO. Jordan began writing for BBDO in 1952 and became the agency's chief creative officer in 1968. He created several high-profile campaigns and was named president of the BBDO agency in 1975. Crawford was an account man who also became president of BBDO International in 1975. Jordan would leave the agency just three years later in a very public and costly settlement. Like Jordan and Crawford, Don and Duck's conflict will fundamentally change Sterling Cooper, but that's one of the main stories that will play out in season two, and I don't want to get too far ahead of that story. What's clearly expressed in For Those Who Think Young is that Don is no longer confident in Duck and rejects many of his ideas about advertising. Peggy and Pete discuss the Clearasil account that afternoon. Director Tim Hunter includes some great ironic shots in this scene, including details like the photograph of Trudy on Pete's desk. Kids, what's the big deal? Pete says. He asks Peggy if she wants to have children. Eventually, she responds. Peggy and Sal walk into Don's office to present their new ideas about Mohawk Airlines. Amanda sends the airplane stairs toward a stewardess in the foreground. Don remains uninspired. Peggy insists it's what he asked for. We're talking about businessmen. Right, businessmen who like short skirts. Sex sells. Says who? Just so you know, the people who talk that way think that monkeys can do this. Don continues to let his personal feelings creep into his work. This scene shows his response to Duck's idea that creative work can be in some way formulaic or reduced to a set of qualities, like youth. He circles a little girl in the background of Sal's drawing and shows Peggy a Valentine's Day heart with the scribbled note, I love you, Daddy. You are the product. You, feeling something. That's what sells. Not them. Not sex. They can't do what we do. And they hate us for it. Dawn's inspiration helps Peggy draw on her own sentimentality. She quickly runs through several ideas. Welcome back, Daddy. Is that a question? What did you bring me, Daddy? Peggy returns to her office and finds a crowd. Jones installed the Xerox machine there, perhaps to remind Peggy where she came from. The secretary's giggle as a young man makes a copy of his face. Peggy seems annoyed. Don rides the elevator on his way home. He's joined by two younger men who talk about seducing a secretary. An older woman enters and stands silent in the foreground, visibly uncomfortable with the conversation. Don looks at the two guys. Take your hat off, he says. He grabs the man's hat and presses it against his chest. The younger men are speechless as they exit the elevator. When he arrives that evening, Don finds Betty still out. He pours a drink and offers to drive Carla home. She looks first to the glass, then to him, and politely declines. Betty's car breaks down that night. 
When the mechanic arrives, Betty flirts with him. Are we bargaining? He asks. He replaces a belt and closes the hood, clutching Betty's hand for a moment as he takes her money. Betty makes it home and finds Don on the sofa, watching the Donna Reed show. She lies about why she was late. Don sits in his office late into the night reading meditations in an emergency. He opens it and writes a note, made me think of you. He slips the book into an envelope, walks down the street, and puts the package in a mailbox. A voiceover reads a stanza from the book's final poem, Mayakovsky. Now I am quietly waiting for the catastrophe of my personality to seem beautiful again, and interesting, and modern. The country is gray and brown and white and trees. Snows and skies of laughter always diminishing. Less funny, not just darker, not just gray. It may be the coldest day of the year. What does he think of that? I mean, what do I? And if I do, perhaps I am myself again. Season premieres are essential in setting a show's emotional tone and introducing some of its primary stories. So where does Mad Men leave us after for those who think young? Mad Men will undoubtedly explore Peggy's pregnancy in season two. It doesn't take up a lot of time in For Those Who Think Young, but Peggy's absence is surrounded by speculation. Meanwhile, Pete's marriage suffers over his inability to have a child, and Pete still seems awkward around Peggy. While her career continues to rise, Peggy occupies a precarious position at Sterling Cooper. She's not respected as a talented copywriter, but holds a higher status than other women at the office. Peggy struggles to fit in with both other copywriters and other women. Instead, she seeks Don's mentorship, and while Don helps Peggy understand the power of personal voice, his own creative ideas are fickle, often contradictory. It's unclear how satisfying Don's mentorship can be given his own troubles. Prominent in Season 2 is Betty's growing independence. She's taken up horseback riding as a hobby and spends some time away from home. She's more assertive in her relationship with Don, and for those who think young, Betty starts to realize the power of her beauty. Mad Men hints at prostitution throughout the episode, through the character of Juanita, references to Butterfield 8, and Betty's final scene with the mechanic. As Betty becomes more confident, she realizes that she can trade her physical beauty to get what she wants. The Draper's marriage has been momentarily repaired. For those who think Young shows none of the philandering that we saw in Season 1's debut episode, Don seems changed. He visits the doctor and comes home from work on time. He tries to see Betty as new and beautiful and exciting. But while the Drapers are together, the romance has faded from their marriage. Don's not aroused by Betty anymore. She no longer interests him. Their relationship is more keeping up appearances than romantic reconciliation. Remember the happiness of Don's vision at the end of episode 1.13? The reality of his marriage now feels like more of a burden. What was once young and new and exciting has grown stale. Youth and age are for those who think Young's most prominent themes, from the episode's title to its closing monologue. This is the first time Mad Men used a voiceover, and the poem Mayakovsky is a fitting conclusion that reveals Don's internal strife. Mayakovsky is named after the Russian poet Vladimir Mayakovsky, a self-described futurist who rejected the past in favor of youth, machinery, and modernization. The poem makes reference to several of Mayakovsky's works, including The Bathhouse and Past One O'Clock.
O'Hara was carrying a copy of Past One O'Clock when he was struck by a jeep and killed. The poem reads, Past one o'clock, you must have gone to bed. The Milky Way streams silver through the night. I'm in no hurry. With lightning telegrams, I have no cause to wake or trouble you. And as they say, the incident is closed. Love's boat has smashed against the daily grind. I really think these poems capture the state of Don Draper to begin season two, one of unvoiced depression, as the immediacy of life passes him by. For those who think Young portrays him as old and outdated, he's languished not just physically but in his success, and he struggles to capture that spark of youth, that desire that brought him to 1962. It's a feeling that seems so closely related to Matthew Weiner and his experience with season two, with recapturing that creative energy that inspired Mad Men's original story. Perhaps the most interesting parallel between Frank O'Hara and Don is their use of an intimate, personal voice. Don's writing is grounded in deep reflection about his own experiences. He strives to evoke feelings. He's always working, always observing. Poets have described O'Hara, saying, He sought to capture in his poetry the immediacy of life. He felt that poetry should be between two people instead of two pages. It's similar to the approach that Don voices to Peggy. You are the product. You, feeling something. That's what sells. For those who think Young also deals with the appeal of newness. For Duck, this is the allure of new creative talent. For Don, it's his repressed sexual desire for other women and his struggle to remain a modern man. While for Betty, it's the excitement of newfound confidence. Sterling Cooper's secretaries marvel at the new Xerox machine. Even the advertising for Mohawk Airlines discusses travel and adventure. The episode ends with a reprise of the Song of the Indian Guest, echoing these dreams of excitement and new, faraway places. Mad Men also weaves in another more subtle theme of finding a place. For those who think Young repeatedly leans on the idea of fitting in new things, Peggy strives to gain respect from her male peers while Sterling Cooper hires some new employees. Joan struggles to find a place for the Xerox machine. Even Don is trying to fit in here, to the duller, quieter life of a family man. One thing Mad Men holds constant, though, is Don's power as an ad man, and his conflict with Duck seems like a new challenge. Season 2's debut hints at Duck's incompetence. Duck pursues aggressive changes at Sterling Cooper, but success remains elusive. He's not landed the big accounts he promised. We'll see this conflict develop throughout Season 2, Don growing frustrated as Duck struggles to survive at Sterling Cooper. And we'll pick that story up in our next episode, Flight 1, as unexpected events drive a personal tragedy and prompt Duck to pursue a new client, American Airlines. Hey everyone, I just wanted to encourage you to like and subscribe to my podcast. You can leave it a review if you're enjoying the content. You can also follow me on Instagram at Mad Men Deconstructed. Welcome to season two. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next episode.